Welcome to Working on Wellbeing, where we share stories of purpose-driven people doing good in the world. We'll meet change agents, entrepreneurs, students, teachers, and big thinkers to learn about their wow moment and how it got them to where they are today. This show is brought to you by Salary Finance, and I'm your host, Anita Ward, cultural anthropologist and chief development officer at Salary Finance. Welcome, everybody, to Working on Wellbeing and People on Purpose. Today, our show's live from my home city, Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm here with a technology entrepreneur, a servant leader, and a man of purpose, integrity, and urgency. And that's not three people. This isn't a panel discussion today. All of these attributes are found in one human being, Mr. Steve Barha. He is the founder of Instant Financial, and he's our guest today. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Anita. Thank you so much for having me. Go Atlanta. Go Atlanta. Now, everybody, if you don't know Instant, you have got to go check them out because Instant's a pioneer in the earned wage access space, but they changed the model. There's no fees, there's no interest. And for me, they focused on values and purpose and well-being. So think about that, you know, what does Hubert Jolais say about the heart of business, right? Think about focusing on people and the rest sorts out. And that's what Instant has done. And like I said, they're headquartered here in Atlanta. We are the fintech capital of the US. I'm claiming that territory, Steve, by the way. So the chamber should love me. I actually think we might be, by the way, by in terms of counts of organizations anyway, fintechs. I think you have about 350 corporate clients and you're moving about a billion dollars in funds annually. That's pretty impressive. And you, my friend, are iconic because you've been delivering technology for at least a couple of decades, not to age you, but or me, about you're a technology (laughs) entrepreneur, a founder of all these companies. But you know what, Steve, when I think of you, I'm always reminded of this quote about Nelson Mandela that he said. And he said, there's no passion to be found playing small or in settling for a life that is less than the one you're capable of living. And you live that passion. And I don't know of you to settle for anything. So I think we're going to have great fun today talking about that. And it's lovely to have you on the show. Well, I appreciate uh, being your guest and, and I love this show. You're doing absolutely fantastic work. I love the mission that you're on personally. I love the mission of salary finance. And I've made a few notes here so that my wife can listen to some of this incredible introduction that you gave because uh, I want her to hear somebody else telling her everything I try to convince her of and that she never believes. <laughs> I'm sure she sees you as an icon too. I <laughs> know. Uh, Quite the, uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's so many things we could talk about today. And, you know, in some ways we could turn this into a podcast in and of itself, kind of the Stephen and Anita show, but you know me, and I think our purpose and our fundamentals are informed in so many ways by our early experiences. And, uh, you know, I call them the wow moments on the show, kind of the pivot points in our lives and where we figured out either well-being or purpose. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe share a bit of your personal story and where did your sense of purpose originate? Where did you grow up? 
uh, I grew up in a small town in central British Columbia, a little town slash city. Uh, we thought we were a city. We were a little small town called Williams Lake. I'm a child of immigrants into Canada, and I spent a, a lot of time dreaming and trying to not be present in that childhood because I think I didn't always fit in. But as I grew through high school, sports helped a lot in terms of helping me fit in and kind of catch my own stride and build a lot of confidence and become a lot more present. But that was, a, uh, I wouldn't have traded that childhood for anything in the world. I think that as difficult as it was not always fitting in, I think those are the, um, those are the repetitions that build character and strength. And I long for being able to replicate some of that experience for my own three children. We live, as you know, like, like you mentioned, in the very big city of Atlanta. So it's a very different experience for them. But on reflection, I had a great, great childhood. But uh, if you asked young me, I don't think he would have agreed that it was a great childhood. So, you know, I'm an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, and I think about you and the cultural impacts of your life. And I had an Italian mother, God rest her soul. So I know that those expectations are. What was that like, you know, having the two very strong cultures come together as a young child? And was there a cultural impact in your life? Uh, there was. I think we always had great food, but uh, it's always, <laughs> it was a, I wouldn't say an undercurrent because that's not giving it justice. There was expectations of uh, excelling in school and a great job only consisted of either being a lawyer or being a doctor. So veering off that path took a little bit of uh, convincing and a little bit of adventure on my part to be able to pull that together. But uh, I'm also the oldest 18 <laughs> cousins that we have. I think that brought with it's uh, an additional expectation that it wasn't just what Steve was doing. It also had to be that this I was kind of blazing the trail and there was going to be a lot of folks watching and that expectation setting, or I, mean, I wouldn't call it mentoring, but just that there were that the, whatever trails I was blazing, that was going to be the path for a, for, for a lot of our family. And so when I chose to not go into law or medicine, I think that was uh, impactful and concerning. When I chose to not marry inside the culture, um, I was absolutely amazing. And she grew up to missionary parents that were building uh, schools in sub-Saharan Africa. So she's got wow. a wonderful worldly perspective, but she's a different race and, and different background. So there's been a lot of uh, trailblazing along the way. And I have the scars and wounds uh, to prove it. But I think it's an absolutely blessed life today. And Mita and our, our family has really kind of come together. And I think pushing and, and nudging some of those uh, boundaries has definitely brought us much closer as a family. And I think it's really enabled us to truly have a world vision as a family. We have some, my, my sisters are doing absolutely fantastic. And all of our cousins are doing just great as well. So it's not easy being the tip of the spear. But when you have so much love and expectation pushing you. Uh, I think that's a, a burden I'm delighted to carry. Uh, I'm the oldest in my family as well, although I don't typically admit that publicly. But uh, I understand that that trailblazing piece of that, and particularly coming from two fairly conservative cultural backgrounds. You know, my Italian background was really quite protective. And so just putting that toe in the water is a little bit of a, a revolution. But I know that something happened to you that really represented a personal pivot for you. And it happened at a fairly early age, I think at you know 12 years old. Something that you experienced changed your outlook a bit. 
Yeah, I did. it. Uh, or in the early days of Instant, we used to make sure that I had a chance to tell every instant here the story. Just it, it's such a bedrock item for me personally. But uh, yeah, when I was 12, I did what 12 year old kids do. It was about going to the corner store and playing video games and, and buying candy. And uh, my grandfather lived with us. And for all case purposes, he was kind of primary caregiver for me. And at 12 years old, my friends were running to the corner store and I didn't have any money, but I remember uh, grandpa used to keep a change jar on his uh, bedside table and I conned him. They use that term very specifically into coming outside to throw a ball around with me, even though he wasn't feeling well, he was uh, at that point uh, in bed and, and, and quite ill. And then while we were outside, I ran back into the house like a silly little kid, took a handful of change out of that jar and then ran to the corner store and played with my friends, buying candy and playing video games. Uh, he passed while I was away. He was very, very ill at the time. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know how sick he actually was. But uh, as you can imagine, at the uh, <laughs> ripe age of 12, that absolutely had a DNA style uh, impact on me in terms of uh, I absolutely won't steal and I won't lie. And that makes for some challenging conversations sometimes. It makes for some challenges for people that are around me and not willing to cross those boundaries ever. And that those are lessons ingrained at a very, very early age. I won't cheat. I won't lie. I won't steal. Uh, I think those foundational items have definitely served me well. And uh, it's actually part of where uh, Instant came from and why we do what we do the way that we do it. So when I said that your personal story is fundamental to it, I couldn't have expressed it more than what you just shared with us. And, you know, in some ways, it really makes me think about those existential questions in life. You know, why did that happen? Where where are we headed? I, I think, Steve, there's this really wonderful space where the things that make us feel like our very best selves kind of meet up with the needs of other people. And so I think we could have a little fun, especially on the back of that story and philosophize a little bit and maybe talk about the meaning of life, but not just introspective because that's neither one of us is, well, we're that way, but we're, we're also very outrospective. I hope that's a word or one that I just made up. And I think that there's this balance between introspection and outrospection and the overlap is kind of where purposeful work lives. So I thought we could have some fun. Maybe I'd just fire some crazy philosophical questions at you and explore this construct a little bit. You want to play? Absolutely. Let's go. Okay. All right. So, Mr. Steve Barha, what are you willing to struggle for? I'm willing to die for everything that I care about. It's really wow. that plain and simple. And if I'm not willing to lay in front of a bus for those people or for those causes, then uh, I'm actually, I draw very hard lines. There's very few gray areas in my life. And uh, I think everything I care for, absolutely, I'm willing to lay in front of a bus and die for. Wow. We just talked about your 12-year-old self. What did 12-year-old Steve love to do? Play and dream. I would probably be the. I'm assuming that was empowered and cared enough that he had an environment that allowed him to play a lot and, and dream a lot. I think that's something that every child should have the opportunity to experience. So, like I said, it was a blessed childhood on reflection. Yeah. If 12 year old Steve knew you today, what would make him joyous about your life? What's possible, I think, would make younger me joyous. Wow. Yeah. Is there anything that would make him cry? Anita, I'm a man. We're not allowed to cry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think knowing how littered this path is 
um, with enduring hardships, I think that would make him cry because there's no easy road ahead. But I think uh, it's also those tears that would be the elixir from which courage would end up being formed. And I think, as you know, being entrepreneurial, being the oldest in a family, coming from ethnic backgrounds where family matters a lot, all of that, all of these adventures that we're choosing are formed around us having the courage to take the first step. And I absolutely believe those first steps are the most difficult to take. And I think those tears are what uh, help form or would help form that courage to to take those first steps. Okay, you're going to make me cry because did you just say tears are the elixir of courage? I feel like that is that's something we could talk about for an hour in and of itself. (laughs) Wow. What makes you forget to eat, Steve? It's problem solving. I love problem solving. We talk all the time about having superpowers. I don't have any for what it's worth. And the only thing I, I don't either. <laughs> the only thing I really I work really hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I work hard. I absolutely work hard. And uh, but I love being able to take complex problems and break them down into their simple elements and then really get to solutions. I love root cause analysis. We talk about that all the time professionally. Unfortunately, we talk about that at home as well, unfortunately for my children. <laughs> uh, but but that's what makes me forget to eat. There's been moments like that where you know, I've missed meals easily just because we're in problem-solving mode. But I believe I'm at my best when we are able to, to, to deal with these hard problems. And uh, that's, that, that's definitely the moments where uh, everything else is secondary to, to getting to the solutions. I laugh because I, you know, I have a son who's um, 24 and we've now, I think, switched roles. So I'm always asking why, and he's always <laughs> impatient with my level of analysis. So I, I think there's a little bit role reversal there. What guides you, Steve? Desire and belief. I, I, I hate to be short with an answer, but that, that, those are the desire creates the richness in life, and the belief is the compass to, as you know, uh, very easy to veer off the path that we should be on. But I think the combination of those two are really the guide pulls that keep me on the path that we're, that we're, we've been on. Yeah, I think we're fortunate too. We live in a city that is also the moral compass for the world too, in many ways. So I think that compass and that North Star that's embedded here and embedded in our upbringings is really very much a part of what guides us in many ways. So are you reading anything interesting these days? I digest tidbits of information like all of us do. I try to be diversified because I think it's really dangerous right now where whatever we touch or have any interaction with, services end up curating just more of that. I think that's very, very dangerous for us as a species or people that care about each other and want to build relationships with each other and jump those divides. But on my side table, there's Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uncracked. Oh, oh uncracked. Like, uncracked. Okay. Yeah. It's, I said it's on my side too. I didn't see that video. Um, and then the story of the gulag from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. That's uh, there's the series of three that uh, I wow. absolutely will devour uh, when when given in just a little bit of time. I can't wait to to get into actually uh, both of those uh, stories. I have another question for you, but I'm going to save it maybe until a little bit later. So. Thank you for playing with that with me, because I think that all of those pieces, as we think about introspection and you know existentialism, 
all of those really say to me so much about who you are and how your passions set the path for your career. And all I can see is this equally divided brain in your head that says, I love analysis, but I love this other part of humanity as well. And so there's sort of this wrangling between math and science and humanity (laughs) and philosophy. And the fact that Viktor Frankl is sitting on your side table, I mean, come on. So talk about that. I mean, where did your tech career begin? Where did it take you? Let's jump into how did this all lay out the stage for instant? Yeah. So uh, it started um, growing up tinkering. So I never had the latest computers, but dad and mom would always buy me, you know, whatever was cheapest uh, in the classifieds. So just tinkering with electronics um, since I was tiny, that, that was kind of the the passion that got developed. I'm an undergrad in computer science and molecular biology from the University of British Columbia. I took a project at Microsoft. It was my first professional work as a software developer. That didn't even last six months. They fired me right away. <laughs> <laughs> but but they did. Say, I remember. I remember the moment. Here's day like it happened yesterday. Steve, we need to tell you you're really really bad at software development. But uh, we like the drawings on the that, that you come up with. So you know whiteboard, blackboard, you're a product person. So we're going to move you over to product management. So that was the blessing. Now, having some technical background helps, but it also hinders in some conversations. But that was kind of the uh, start of me finding my uh, stride professionally. But then I think it, it was very clear to me very, very quickly that the large companies pace uh, for me, I just needed to move a lot faster and build a lot faster and problem solve a lot faster. And so the the desire to be an entrepreneur, not that I even knew what that word was or what it meant at the time, but I, I left and started a company called Santra. We invented web services quality of service. And at the time when we were really moving to internet technology being used to have applications talk to applications or, or servers talk to servers, there wasn't an ability to monitor those that information flow back and forth. Um, so Said simply, if you remember back uh, with Netscape, if you remember the, the product, of if it didn't render, do. <laughs> if it didn't render a web page, you just hit click refresh and it would redraw <laughs> the page. So software couldn't do that, servers couldn't do that. So we built the infrastructure that allowed that to happen. We exited that business to, to Hewitt Packard. Then I joined a company in Vancouver, Canada called InfoTouch. They were doing uh, bill payment, sorry, uh, internet access kiosks. We turned that business from internet access kiosks into one of the world's largest bill payment platforms. I'm serving most large kind of financial services around the continent and exited that business to PayPal. And then I founded Instant with uh, with my co-founder. So you talk about for the last few minutes about your integrity and acting with urgency and you know the values you live by. How did the story of Instant unfold and how did that align back with your mission? I mean, perfect alignment, which is what makes uh, Anita this business so easy. It's why the endless hours each day, I mean, it feels like a joy. We don't charge fees to employees to access their earnings. There's no interest. There's it, It's truly empowering employees to access their earnings in the schedule or you know as, as they need to, as opposed to the confines of a biweekly or monthly or even a weekly paycheck. 
So the fact that there's no semantic trickery with which we're reaching into people's pockets, working Americans' pockets, I mean, that aligns perfectly, I hope, to everything you just heard about who I am as a person. And uh, it allows me to really not be challenged in terms of what we're doing in relation to who I am and rather who I want to be probably is more accurate. But it's kind of perfect alignment, doing right by doing good and building a great business, serving our over 300 clients, uh, our large corporate employers that have rolled the solution out and and love the instant program. And at the same time, serving their employees that uh, aren't living paycheck to paycheck, that have a little bit of liquidity within those pay cycles and don't have to turn to you know, the so-called alternative financial services world, what we now have termed uh, with a friendly name, you know, payday lending and all these <laughs> services that have these large uh, fees and, and, and charges associated to them. So it feels good to be doing good and, and it's in perfect alignment, which is what makes it so easy. Yeah, I think we're both Italian and you know, I think there's a history there around loan sharking somewhere, but I'm not want to be terribly disparaging. You know, Steve, <laughs> I I grew up in financial services and I think back on the whole construct and what you're solving for at instant. And the idea being, I think, if I get my history right, that you know, bi-weekly or weekly or paying on the first and the fifteenth was just invented because of checks and the administration that it took to get checks to people, right? So it almost seems like, wow, that sort of pop in the head. Why didn't we do earned wage access before now or early wage access before now? And you tell this great story, I think, about fixing the problem and the the cricket wireless machines, you know, put $10 on it. And I think between the problem that administration and the inability to process a check, when that kind of aligned with the put $10 on it, I think that might also have been a moment of pivot where you're like, I have an answer for this. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that uh, putting ten on it was uh, was a paradigm that became evident at us uh, that we saw at, at the TO Networks, the the bill payment uh, platform. And you know, they talk about mastery comes from ten thousand hours. I'm sure I spent ten thousand hours standing beside. TO machines talking to people that were paying their bill. So TO had a, a wonderful program, but we had a convenience fee attached to it because we had we would accept a cash payment and then remit that cash. And so there was it was actually a relatively expensive business to run. But people, folks that used the the, the the TO service would pay a two or three dollar convenience fee. For uh, Cricket Wireless was a company that was bought by AT and T recently, but Cricket Wireless users uh, was a it was a Cricket Wireless was a prepaid all you can eat wireless for effectively forty dollars a month, and folks that were paying uh, or topping up their Cricket accounts on the Teal machines, I would see them over and over. There's this kind of ten thousand hours uh, putting. $10 into their Cricket account, but then paying us a $3 fee as well. But then they would do it. I'd see them again. And you start to recognize faces after a while. And you'd see some of these same faces come back and put 10 on it. So that was an, a paradigm where they didn't want, they couldn't lose their their, their phone service. It, it was It's, it's absolutely uh, uh, critical for them in terms of keeping in touch with their, their, their family, but also so they could get calls into work or when work called, they, they you could go and pick up a shift. So to budget, what they were doing is putting $10 a week on into their Cricket account. But then each time they paid the $10, they were also paying us a $3 fee. So effectively, they were paying $52 a month for a $40 service. 
But when you, when you chat with people and had these conversations, you know, why don't you just put $40 at the end of the month and pay us that $3 fee? We'll be happy. We love providing this service and, you know, we don't need $12 in fees from you. But the, that human side of those conversations were that this is just how they drive their budget. This is how they budget and they're used to paying these fees. And I heard over and over and over again, that's just the way it is for me. A complete lack of mm -hmm. fiscal dignity, a complete lack of opportunity and, a, and kind of not a, a holistic ability to do right by, by some of these people. So that, you know, seeing that story over and over again and, and uh, it never really felt right reaching into these people's pockets when there was a better way. It's 2021. There's incredible budgeting tools. And I think in fintech in general, we really haven't driven enough innovation to truly put people in charge of their, their money. And I know there's a lot of great companies that are starting to tackle these challenges, but it still feels like we're really just scratching the surface, even after almost 20 years in fintech, just starting to scratch the surface of really what's possible with, a, with technology and a bedrock of trying to do right by people. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think we've been a bit of Sisyphus pushing that, you know, rock up that hill, but I think we're unlike him nearing the top now. I, I think there are moments that I believe... I personally believe EWA will be a standard within a few years and that technology will help it get there. But, you know, one of the things that struck me in your storytelling about the founding of Instant was a tipping point for you that when you were on a flight on a business trip, and I think as I start putting together all the pieces of this puzzle that makes Steve Barha, this is a really important conversation, especially when you start talking about control. So would you share with everybody listening what happened on that flight? Uh, I think I was 34 at the time. I was flying back on a business trip and just standard tired, long week uh, of work. And uh, sitting on a flight, I, I, I saw these gray bubbles go across uh, my right eye and, and I couldn't see properly. So I, I didn't know that was actually my retina detaching, but that was the moment my retina detached. And so, I mean, I actually just closed my eyes and thought, wow, I'm so tired. I'm not even seeing correctly. So I, I, mean, I just closed my eyes and however I put my head down, I, you know, the retinal flap kind of touched back. And so, I mean, I drove home the <laughs> next day, same thing. We, I remember being in a meeting, Anita, and then the same bubbles, curtain of gray bubbles, like, you know, the, the, the bubble wrap that you use, imagine that being gray. Yeah. And that's what was, uh, that's what I was seeing out of one of my oh. eyes. And then uh, one of our product people actually said, they were looking up the, the symptoms that I was having. And they said, well, we, we think that's your retina detaching. I was like, no, no, come on. It can't be. So we started reading in this meeting. We all started reading what this gray curtain was. So we called an ambulance and uh, I had uh, over the course of two and a half years, nine major surgeries trying to uh, bring this the, the vision back in my eye. But over the course of that time, and as you can imagine, I spent uh, after nine major surgeries, a lot of time, you know, turned on my left with my head turned uh, to help, uh, try to help the eye heal in a dark room. Uh, I was miserable. I had, we had just had our third child at the time and I wasn't able to pick him up um, just because that would cause pressure in the eye, which might cause oh the, a failure of the surgery. So it, it wasn't a pleasant time, but uh, I, I remember just thinking about earnings, significantly reduced earnings over that time, as you can imagine. And uh, we'd been blessed along the way. So it's not like we were hand to mouth at that point, but even, I mean, we were worried about where the funds were going to be to pay a bill and, and how we were going to make ends meet if this continued on for any kind of longer duration. But I also remember my wife one time, uh, she was now having to, to take care of, you know, moving money around. And she walked in 
and because I couldn't look at screens and she had her laptop open and she said, well, you know, there's no money in the checkings account, but how do I pay this bill? And I was like, well, you got to move money over from one of the savings accounts into the checking account. And then, you know, then when the money's there, you can pay. And she said, well, why is there no money in the checkings account? It's well, because I'm not getting paid right now. There's no earnings. And uh, I don't get paid until, you know, whatever that was next Friday. And as she was leaving, she made a snarky little comment because uh, she was upset that she was having to do all this stuff. And her husband's laid out <laughs> in bed in the dark room and she's got a new baby to contend <laughs> with as well. And she said, well, that's, to paraphrase, she said, you know, that, that's, that's stupid. Why do you only get paid every two weeks? And then she slammed the door and left. And if you can imagine that just sat there and haunted me for years afterwards, why do we only get paid every two weeks? And like you were saying, it comes from uh, effectively, by the way, there's a great book on payroll. If you enjoy uh, falling asleep very, very early, I'll, I'll send you a link for the book, but uh, it, it talks about the history of payroll and this, this, our, our current paradigm of payroll came from the industrialization of companies where you moved from, uh, you know, a few employees that would get paid every day to large uh, masses of employee populations, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees, and you had to move to batch payroll processing. And the software that drives payroll, the processes that drive payroll, and and the wonderful people that run payroll are effectively at their limit running payroll every two weeks. There's just a lot to it. So the notion of just speeding up payroll doesn't work either. Um, there's uh, there's tax obligations that are due they're, they're from a wage and hour law perspective. There's pay stubs that have to be issued every time you run payroll. So the solution for this, why do you only get paid every two weeks, was to build a bolt-on service that stands alongside an employer's existing payroll process that doesn't force employers to change their payroll processes, but still provides liquidity to employees that, that here in America, 80% of this country lives paycheck to paycheck. And you know the statistics around financial wellness or the lack of financial wellness. So by giving these employees access to some of their earnings when they need it without any fees or charges, and also not uh, having any detrimental impact to the payroll process of the employer, uh, we're able to provide this service. And uh, it uh, the, the light went on in the dark, if you will. So um, adding to your statistics, we might want to be inclined to say that this is just an issue for low-income earners. But... Uh, coming off the tail of 2020, we're seeing that even nearly 30% of people making $168,000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. So the ability to access your wages when you need them to cover a shortfall in cash flow, I, I think is critical. And you made me think about something, Steve, that I grew up in Las Vegas and my brother and sister both worked in gaming. And I remember they used to come home with envelopes full of cash at the end of a shift. So they would split up the tips and literally every dealer would get an envelope with his or her share of, of the tips. But I believe the instant suite does instant pay, but also does instant tips too. And I think instant miles. And so you've really thought through the gig economy. You've thought through uh, all of the different dimensions as well. Am, am I correct in, in that recall? That's right. That's, that's bang on. So there's really two things that make instant different from everybody else in the space. One is like we talked about, we're the pioneer of no fee, no interest access to earnings. Frankly, if you're charging fees for employees to access some of their earnings, I mean, that, that sounds a lot like payday lending, right? That's not our model at all. There's no, there's no semantic trickery in our program to try to trick hardworking Americans out of their earnings. There's no charges, there's no interest charges, there's no subscription charges. Free 
clear access to earnings. And those funds can be made immediately available to them on their instant card, or if they want to transfer money to a different account, they can do so as well. And then the second kind of uh, key difference between us and everybody else is we've really thought through all the different ways that employees earn. Like you were mentioning, your family used to earn tip funds. Um, so companies like Bloom and Brands, all 1,300 of their locations around America pay out their tips electronically through the instant program. And those employees that are being paid their tips through instant tell us they feel more financially secure because there's a history. As you know, those envelopes full of cash, that cash <laughs> disappears. It might yes. be under your bed for a little while, but you don't know where it went. So they have, they're effectively being banked with instant and now they're able to save some money. They know where their money's going. They can budget, they can use the tip earnings, just like a lot of us that are salaried um, and take advantage of services that are kind of based for salary based employees, but for their tip funds, they tell us, Anita, they feel more secure. Uh, and the scenario, that one to me was, was interesting. It's really the scenario of leaving a, a restaurant in the middle of the night with a pocket full of cash. Those people are targeted by thieves. An entire category I haven't really thought through when we were envisioning what we wanted to do and what services we wanted to provide, but that's what people tell us. Thank goodness for instant tips because now I don't have a pocket full of cash. I can go to my car and I know I'm going to be safe on the walk. I'm not looking left and right in the dark or sprinting to my car because I'm worried about this pocket full of cash, which makes me a target. And then mileage payments for Papa John's drivers. As they earn uh, and, and drive, their, their payments are paid out directly to them. We have commissions and bonuses that are being paid through the program. And what Sprint dealers actually saw was by linking earnings uh, directly to or in, in real time for those employees, the employees getting uh, what they came to work for, which is to earn, and the employers also driving the behaviors they want. Sprint wireless dealers, the, the retailers are spending more time. The agents are selling the more expensive handset because their commissions are directly linked to that activity. So it really, it, it's the kind of the perfect nexus between the employees getting what they want and the employers driving the behaviors they want. And so that, to kind of summarize that whole second of, of what makes us different, all the different ways that employees earn are also made available in the instant program for the uh, for those employees. I also think that the true paradigm shift that kind of sits behind all of it, Steve, is a question of control of wages, right? And as you shift the control back to me as the employee, then you're also starting to shape my behavior, whether that's me beginning to budget or stop living paycheck to paycheck. There's this sort of sense of financial dignity and financial security, not just as I'm walking in the parking lot, but knowing that I've got something the next day and the next day, and I'm, I don't have to put 10 on it, but in some ways, it's a little bit of that, right? I'm getting my paycheck today. I control it. I earned it. And as I said earlier, I think it's going to be a standard. I think that what you're driving is an economic shift, a complete change in how we get paid. But, you know, I'm, I'm a geek anyway at heart and an anthropologist. So I've got that same issue you have with both sides of my brain. But what do you think it's going to take to get, you know, the adoption of earned wage access? What do you, what do you think it'll take? I'm not sure if it takes any more nudges, Anita. I think there's a demand from employees. I mean, we, we see the headlines around what the challenges that great employers are having acquiring labor. And I think in the industries um, 
where, which by the way, is most industries, revenue and the health of the business is directly linked to being able to attract and retain labor. This kind of, uh, po- or I don't know if we can say post-COVID or at this point during our COVID experience, I think the best employers in the country are looking for something to differentiate themselves to be an employer of choice. But I also believe we have employees that were using instant that, you know, when we didn't, when COVID was first having its impact, we didn't really know what it was. And remember the the conversations around there's no toilet paper left on shelves and there's no food left. Those employees took an instant pay, didn't pay any fee or interest charges. They took their instant car to the grocery store or the gas station and, and they loaded up. Those employees had access to their earnings when they needed it. And those folks will never go work for an employer that doesn't offer instant pay. So I think we've kind of reached this tipping point between earned wage access vendors that have really proven out our models with kind of the traditional employers. And I think it's coupled with the the gig uh, platforms. Every major gig platform has instant pay or a service like instant. And so in the United States, we have, depending on whose numbers you believe, between 25 and 50 million Americans that work at gig platforms, and they all have access to real-time earnings. So I think we've reached this kind of tipping point now where we've gone from this is an innovative, interesting idea to instant pay being an absolute must-have benefit that has to be provided by employers if they're going to compete for labor and if they're going to if they want to retain their uh, existing employees. Yeah, there's a book now that's probably 20 years old called The Clue Train Manifesto and they talked about how control shifts. And at the time it was consumer behavior shifting and the consumer driving so much. And I think in many ways the paradigm now with EWA is very similar to that. The control has shifted to the employee. It is now a demand So demandments, if you will, from employees that say, we want this, and this is what it's going to take to retain me. I said I I was saving one question, Steve. You've accomplished so much. Congratulations. You're, you know, one of my great heroes here. But what's on your bucket list? But actually, it's just, if we go back quickly for one second, there's another book actually that talks about uh, instant pay a little bit. And it's a little bit older, but in uh, Deuteronomy 2415, it's written that uh, you must give him his wages. <laughs> a little bit older, you think? <laughs> <laughs> it says, give him his wages before the sun sets, lest he cry against you to the Lord and yeah. it be a sin to you. So uh, there's there's just, Anita, and this journey that- So even God on, wants us to get paid the same day. <laughs> that's right. Even God wants instant to win. Um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a, no, from, from a bucket list perspective, I wouldn't say I have a bucket list that's kind of different from everything else we've kind of talked about, but I, I know with absolute certainty that uh, I feel an obligation to, to, to all the wonderful souls that provided us with so much, my, me, my family, all my colleagues. And it just feels like this journey, even though we're, we've been at this for a while, it feels like we're just getting started. And there's so much opportunity and we've been so blessed along the way, but I feel an absolute obligation to pay some of this back to all those wonderful people that have helped us and continue to keep us on the right path. And I think if, there, if there's a bucket list item, I, I would love the, 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 to be in a point in time where I have the freedom to go back and pay some of this back so that there is an opportunity for some sort of enduring dent in the universe. But that's, by the way, that's not to serve my own ego. I don't want anybody talking about, about my ego or, 
the, the what I did, because as you know, all of these technologies are, it's, it's a small army of people that bring this to light. And uh, uh, I get to be the face of it. I mean, we've had people at Instant Crying when we're talking about the stories of the impact we have. We've had people sweating in our early offices when the AC went out. But we've had people literally bleeding when we used to stuff our own Instant cards into our envelopes. So we've been through all that journey of blood, sweat, and tears. And all of those people deserve an opportunity to, to kind of expand their, their horizons. But uh, that enduring dent wouldn't be to serve me, but it would be so that uh, I want my children to see. We spend so much time away from family while we're building these companies and these technologies, but I want them to see what's possible. I want them to challenge improbable. And uh, I want them to know that those limitations, they're not true limitations that, that get imposed around us. Paraphrase Oscar Wilde, uh, we need to believe in the impossible and remove the improbable. So for me, that journey of, of hopefully at some point I have enough freedom, I can go back and start to pay back some of those uh, blessings that we've received. But I want my kids to, to see what actually is possible and why dad spends so much time away from them so that their reach continues to expand. I think that's the path. I think that's how we have an enduring impact. Wow. I have heard it said, Steve, that it's venture capital that is sort of the rocket fuel for tech companies. But I have a friend, Megan, she's an astrophysicist, and she will tell you that rocket fuel is only used by rockets. And I'm a big believer that people come before the fuel. And what you just said really encapsulates that. I I think, my friend, you're the only fuel that any business rocket needs. And the idea of creating this legacy and this, you know, contribution to the universe. I have no doubt that you're going to do that. And it has my great pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Anita. I appreciate the opportunity. And everybody go check out Instant. And thank you all for listening to Steve Barha today, share his story about people on purpose. Until next time, keep on working on well-being. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Working on Wellbeing, brought to you by Salary Finance. I'm Anita Ward. At Salary Finance, our mission is to improve the financial health of working Americans by providing access to socially responsible financial products in the workplace. You can learn more about how you can partner with us to help improve your employees' financial well-being at salaryfinance.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode.